Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 220. Out now on video on demand, DVD, and Blu-ray is Life After Flash, a documentary that delves into the making of Flash Gordon, the 1918 cult classic, 1980 cult classic, that wowed generations of film fans and inspired a legion of filmmakers. The film especially looks into the career of actor Sam Jones, and the ups and downs of his personal and professional life after Flash Gordon was released. Joining me now to talk about Life After Flash is the film's director, Lisa Downs. Lisa, I thank you very much for joining me today. Well, you are very welcome. And I heard, what are you on, 220 episodes? This That's is number, number 220 right now. Good number, uh, round number, to uh, start talking about your movie. Um, four years in the making to make this film. Um, I'm just really curious, that much dedication towards one film in particular about one subject, what was it about Flash Gordon that really had an effect on you that wanted you to make a documentary about it and its actor Sam Jones? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't plan on it being four years. Um, that's just how it happened. Um, it The whole process actually happened quite organically. I had always been a fan of Flash Gordon. I don't remember when I first saw it. Um, a lot of people I've spoken to throughout this journey really remember that they saw it with their dad in the cinema and just it hit them with the colors and the music. But I don't have that memory because I'm a little too young to be part of the cinematic period of Flash's life. Um, I was more of a see it on VHS, see it on television. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had always been a fan and a friend of mine from the UK, there's a show here called The Jump, which I don't know if you have an Australian version of it. They, it's like celebrities do Olympic ski jumps. No, we don't have that. Uh, I mean, it's a t- terrible concept for a show, but it got approved through insurance. And, uh, and so be it. It's a, it's a very dangerous show. And so Sam was supposed to be on it, but, of course, hurt his shoulder mm-hmm. trying to do a, you know, a li- Olympic ski jump. Um, but he – so he never – it never aired. But I was talking to my friend Lisa Doyle uh, at a party – one night and she had mentioned Flash Gordon and I was like, Oh my God, Flash, I love him. I wonder what he's doing now. Wouldn't that make a great documentary? I only know him from Ted. Uh, we should call it life after flash and you know, we should, you know, not thinking really anything will happen from it. But I followed up with her and sent her a treatment and she had sent it to his agent. He emailed back. I ended up Skyping him to talk about it more. Cause obviously there was a lot, more involved than just hey do you want to do this film I wanted to crowdfund it he I only had had broadcast credits with other production companies this was kind of the first big thing I was doing alone uh, as an independent so there were a lot of factors that um, we had to talk about before it was a yes so uh, that was October 2014 and I first met him in January 2015 and thus the uh, the epic journey that (laughs) life after flash uh, was uh, began. I find that when I talk to filmmakers, film critics, or just film fans in general, that usually there's there's that one film experience that they've had that really kind of set for them that they were going to either go into the film industry to to work with films or to write about films or what have you. For myself, that film was Serpica. I remember being like I think like seventeen, eighteen years old. It was on late at night on TV here in Australia. And after that, it's just like I've watched films before that, but that movie made me a film fan and really wanted to dive into films in, in a more, in a, in a different type of level. Um, as yourself, as a filmmaker, was Flash Gordon the movie for you that really brought to mind 
that you wanted to make films as much as like watch and enjoy them? Not, not really. And to be honest, I don't have that one film that, that a lot of filmmakers do. For me, I used to, I have a handful of films that I grew up on that I associate with kind of being transported into these other worlds. And I wasn't really conscious that there was, that they were being made at that time. I just thought these were places that existed and mm-hmm. people that existed. Like I wanted to go to Fantasia. I wanted to go to, um, you know, be on this adventure with Dale and I wanted to be friends with the Goonies and I wanted to go and explore the labyrinth. And, you know, there's, I just, I didn't realize that they were actors and that they would be cameras. Um, but then as I grew more aware of it a little later on, I wanted to be an actor, strangely enough. So in a very cutthroat world, I then realized that I wasn't very good at it anyway. Um, and having done t- a TV degree in Wagga in Australia, yay, Australia, um, <laughs> I realized that was going to be my backup career technically. You know, if you want to be an actor, make sure you do something else because there's a very small chance of you actually making it. Um, So I did TV production degree and it was then that I realized I wasn't very good. And B, I really enjoyed the process of making films um, and the creative part of having an idea or a story that you want to tell and being able to tell it. Um, So, yeah, I kind of wish I did. I feel like I'm missing out a little bit on that (laughs) that experience. Um, But I just, there were a handful of films that I, knew I wish I had made and I think that was part of why I then decided that I wanted to try and make my own projects and films, documentaries. When it comes to this film, as I mentioned um, in the intro that you touched on as well, uh, this film is about Flash Gordon, the making of the film. It's also about Sam Jones himself and what happened to him in his career. Um, he's He's someone who comes across very candid, um, about his flaws, about his mistakes. Um, he opens up quite a bit about the tragedies in his past life. Um, when you are interviewing Sam over the, 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 the years, um, the rapport that you have with him to get him to open up, um, did he approach the project with that kind of, um, um, with that kind of um, uh, openness or did it take some prompting from you as a filmmaker, as an interviewer, um, to try to get him to open up and talk about these things? Um, both, to be honest. he We had had a conversation the very first time we met him to say, look, if we're going to tell your story and allow people to see how, how you got to the point in your life that you've gotten to, we need people to see where you came from and what you overcame. When I had that conversation with him, I didn't, I didn't actually know his story. Um, you can only Google so much about a person a lot of the time. So I had known there were like rumors that something had happened on set. I could see on his IMDb that he did a lot of work, but I personally didn't know about any of those projects until Ted. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So he had said, yes, you know, I will, I'll, I'll kind of open my, open the door to my life with you for that. And he, I, and the relationship he has with his amazing wife, Ramona, she had supported that and said, you know, I, I really think you should be honest as well. I totally support you. But what was really great about Sam was he had 
told all his friends. There's a, there's a really close-knit group of his friends um, that you all see in the film. They're interviewed as well. And he and his family. And he just said to them, look, I don't care what you say. As long as you're honest and what you're saying is the truth, then I don't care what you say. And so it was through those interviews that I learned more about Sam and all the, the, the things that had happened in his life, you know, about his brother and about his very, very low points. And so then it was about the fourth interview with Sam. Because like you say, you know, you start off with top-line interviews, you know, how did the audition come about? How yeah. did, you know, what was it like on set? And then you get um, to get to know each other. And then as the interviews go on, I started putting in more personal questions. So it was about the fourth interview that I went to him. And I, I did a few of those questions. He was still a bit closed off because he didn't expect me to bring up some stuff Mm -hmm. so then he had to go away i sent him an email and said look this is what i need to talk to you about and we need to cover because this is what your friends have said uh so then it was the fifth interview which is the one we actually did it in london it's kind of like a gold background where he really goes into the heart of everything that happened that he had had a conversation with his wife the night before and with the pieces of information that i needed to talk to him about and again, it was, yep, okay, let's make the decision that we'll use this as a platform to inspire people and help people if they're going through something. But, yeah, for them to see where I've got to in this in my, in my life, it would be helpful to for them to realize what I've been through and what I've overcome. So then that fifth interview was the one where he was just an open book, you know. And we were very lucky that he was like that. It wouldn't have been the same if he had been closed off or not owned up to certain what he sees as mistakes, um, you know, or, or certain regrets. So it, we were very, very lucky that he also told his friends to be open as well because I don't think a lot of people would have just volunteered that information. So, yeah, I mean, what you see is just totally Sam being real and honest and, um, you know, some people have thought maybe that that isn't the real him, uh, but then you meet him in person, and he's totally—he's exactly—he's exactly what you expect him to be. He's exactly how he comes across on the film. Um, so it was a pretty special experience. A crossroads in um, Sam's professional life was the conflict that he had with uh, producer Dino De Laurentiis. And for anyone out there who, who don't, doesn't know who Dino De Laurentiis is, he's a legendary, or he was a legendary Italian producer won an Oscar for La Strada. He gave Arnold Schwarzenegger his big break in Canada Barbarian. And I, at least, I don't know if you know this, but Arnold Schwarzenegger actually sh- shared a story at his at um, Dina De Laurentiis' funeral um, where he actually had an audition to play the role of Flash Gordon. Um, and Dina De Laurentiis actually told him, you have an accent, you cannot be Flash Gordon, which is ironic because at the end he ended up dubbing um, Sam James' voice anyway. No, um, I didn't. I knew he did a speech, but I didn't know that's what it was. So it was just the ironies of all ironies there. But going, going back to the initial thing, it was that conflict between the two. And you can really tell that while um, Sam Jones is a very prideful man, he had a lot of regret in regards to how he, how he approached that. Was that conflict that on his part, was that just inexperience? Was that listening to the wrong people? Was it a mix of all of that? I mean, what was it that really drove him as a young actor going into this world that he never really knew beforehand to really present himself that way and get into that kind of conflict with one of the most 
powerful men in the entertainment industry in that time. Well, you have to, I guess, put yourself in his position. You know, he was like early 20s, just got, it was really his second second made, second role, mm. his first major film. He's carrying the entire film. Um, it's a big budget, especially for, for those days. It was a huge budget. So there's a lot of pressure for you to yeah. make this a success. There's a lot riding on it. There's a lot of careers riding on it, a lot of money riding on it. Um, and you want to do the best job possible. And always with that kind of situation, there are going to be a lot of fingers in the pies, opinions. Um, so it came down to him wanting to do the right thing. He was, he was a little strong-headed at the time too, you know, a little bit of an ego, which he talks about in the film. Um, so that probably didn't help. But, yeah, he had people telling him that he should be doing certain things and asking for certain things. He, at the time, wasn't sure if he should agree with it or not, but, you know, these people are your representatives. They are supposed to look out for your best interests. So it uh, it was definitely a mix of being young, being inexperienced, and listening to the wrong people uh, that ultimately a lot of people say cost him his career, really. You talk to quite a number of other people as well that are involved in the film. Um I, one of them is Brian Blessed, the legendary Brian Blessed, who played Prince Fulton in the movie. He seemed like a real hoot to talk to, just the way that he kind of comes across so animated and just so boisterous. What was it like talking to him? Because I actually read in an interview that you said it was a three-hour answer to two questions. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty much right on the money? It was. It was like it was like an hour forty to two questions. I mean, it was a long. It was a very long time. Brian Blessed is one of UK's most beloved actors. I don't know how revered he is in Australia in comparison, but in the UK he is just brilliant and everybody loves him. So to meet him was quite an experience. And he is like like I was saying with Sam, he how you expect him to be is exactly how he is in person. He is so full of life and he performs. Like when you ask him a question, he doesn't just answer the question, he performs the answer. And it's like he's kind of reenacting every scene that he talks about and he does the voices and he does the mannerisms and it's all very theatrical and brilliant. Um, but, yeah, I think it was it was something like how did you get the role and what was it like filming Flash Gordon? And then I really didn't have to do anything else for, for like over an hour. It was really quite special. Um, and to be honest, I I wish I could have put more of him in the film than there is. Uh, but on the, the DVD and Blu-ray release of, of mine, um, there's more because I just, there was so many brilliant anecdotes that he told that it was like heartbreaking to cut them out. <laughs> so so there are more released in the on the special features. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's exactly how you expect him to be, and I thoroughly enjoyed having him involved. And also I organised the, in 2015, I organised a Flash Gordon cast reunion um, at the home of BAFTA here in London, which he was part of, which Sam Jones, Melody, uh, Peter Wingard, Mike Hodges, there were a, a bunch of people there. And he just stole the show to the point that Peter Wingard came after me, came up to me afterwards and said, it was a fabulous evening, but Brian Blessed talks too much and took the microphone too much. So even, you know, he definitely knows how to command the stage. 
He, he sure does. He knows that he still knows how to command a screen uh, as well, as, as, as evident in, in your film. Um, another person who appears in your movie, uh, Brian May from the movie, from the band Queen. Of course, mm. you can't talk about Flash Gordon the movie without talking about the soundtrack. Um, I I have a feeling that if it was me that was in the room with Brian May, I'd, I'd be almost incomprehensible because <laughs> he's just such an iconic uh, musician. And uh, um, What about for yourself, Lisa? When you're in the room with Brian May, he's at his piano, he's playing the theme song uh, for Flash Gordon. How, what, what happens to you? Like, for, for like, When I was watching it, I was just like, this has to be one of the coolest experiences that I'd imagine you as a big Flash Gordon fan would, would, have, to, would have to go through. Even as a Queen fan, I mean, it's really intimidating, like almost to the point that it becomes a bit unbelievable what is happening. You know, I had to kind of separate myself from it all. And and even before the actual interview happened, like like you rightly said, you can't do an interview, uh, you can't do a film about Flash Gordon without Queen. So that was a huge pressure for me. I was like, how how do I release this if I, if I can't get Brian May? You know, I might have to. I would hate to, but. You know, it was a reality, obviously, because of his schedule. So, first of all, it was trying to connect with him in the first place. And then I finally did, through someone else, get to his assistant where he, I was. I remember it so clearly, I was in the edit suite and my, an email popped up in my inbox and it said, Brian May. I was like, what is happening? So weird. Um, but he was, like, super keen to do it and he said, oh, there's this, you know, this section in the, the song that not many people know about. I'd love to play it if we can do the interview somewhere with a piano. Wow. I was like, yes, yeah. <laughs> wherever you want. Um, so that was actually in his house that was filmed. Um, and it took, from the moment he said yes, it was probably about a year before it happened just because we had six, it took six dates in the diary for it to not to be changed due to his ridiculous schedule because they were doing Bohemian Rhapsody at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to walk in and he, he's so funny and you walk in and there's like a throne and photos of Freddie and it's too weird and surreal. So we're setting up That's So that's his actual piano and we're setting up around it. And then I kind of see this wash of gray hair through the window and I turn to my producer, who's also my partner. I was like, I think that's Brian May. I don't know what to say. And I got really clammy. Um, and then he walked in and he was so lovely and I gave him a hug and, it was like one of those awkward moments where it's like he do a kiss on the cheek and I think I went for two, but he, I think was just going to do one. And I like, it was like an awkward pause and Oh my God, it was so awkward. <laughs> so, so then that happened. And then he said, Oh, let me go and kind of get ready upstairs while we finish setting up. And then he came down in that flash t-shirt. So that was his choice with like a flash album and a flash mug. And so is this too much? I said, no, maybe the mug and the album, but the shirt's <laughs> wonderful. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, it's so surreal talking to someone like that. And then halfway through the interview, I really had kind of put it in the back of my head and tried not to think about it. But halfway through the interview, when he was answering a question, that's when it hit me. And I think I, there was like probably a big pause between his answer and the next question because I was like, oh, this is the guy that wrote Flash Gordon. This is the guy that we will rock you. And it's like, this is the guy. Um, it was all very surreal and strange and, you know, one that I keep pitching myself over. And he also plays with um, sixpence. Little, it's like an old British coin that no one uses anymore. Um, and he only plays the guitar using these specific coins. So his poor assistant has to keep trying to find these out, like 
uh, unused coins. Um, so I've got he he gave us one, so I've got one framed in my office, which is quite sweet. That's awesome. So he uses these coins. He does use a traditional guitar pick, but these coins to play his guitar. Yeah, and it's, from what I'm told, doesn't won't play if he doesn't have them. Wow, um, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's I, I think that's really quintessential for for him as well, um, and a really kind of cool thing for him to have. Um, you yeah. mentioned the word surreal and strange. I'd imagine going to all these different Comic Con conventions would have been a surreal and strange experience as well. Um, a lot of the interviews take place at comic uh, at these comic book and uh, fan conventions, um, and it's a really kind of interesting environment to navigate because. And not only is that a place where fans can celebrate their favorite films in their comics or, or TV shows or what have you, um, but it's also where artists and actors like Sam can not only connect with their fans, but also kind of like make a living while doing so. They can meet fans and sell merch and do stuff like that. What was it like hanging out in places like that? Um, have you been to those conventions before, being a big Flash Gordon fan? Um, or was it kind of like a first-time experience for you to hang around in places like that? I had never been to one until this. I had nearly gone because I remember probably about 2012-ish, like a couple of years before I met Sam, I had missed, I saw an ad for this London one and saw that Sam and Melody were there and I was really gutted that I didn't have the chance, funnily enough, to go and see Sam and Melody uh, at a comic convention. But, yeah, I had never been to one before. It's really, it's such a funny world, Um that you realize at first is really strange and um, it's like nothing else you've been for. It's so hard to explain if you haven't been to one. Um, but it's you you then – because also you're like seeing all these really famous faces around the room, like really famous faces and people that you have like grown up with and they're like just there and they're so friendly and you can go and talk to them. And, and then you have all these people dressed up, like really dressed up with – just the most incredible outfits and like the intention to detail that they have in these outfits. And so it is a little strange at first. And then you realize that it's actually this really incredible place that is just full of people being themselves and expressing what they love without anyone making fun of them. Like they may have done in high school growing up. Um, And it's really nice to see just a bunch of people celebrating film and television and science fiction and celebrating the actors and and then the actors being able to meet the people that have kept their careers going, you know, and the, the reason that they can come to these kind of places. And Sam, as you'll, you'll see from the film, just loves it. And that's not an exaggeration what is said in the film about Sam and Comic-Cons. Like, he will literally stay until like after hours into the next day if he could to, to make sure that everyone who came to see him gets a conversation. He doesn't just kind of sign and usher someone away. He will like, you know, the queue will go so slowly <laughs> sometimes because he is just standing talking to people. So um, it's a really great place for you, for people to meet their idols and fans. Um, and it's a very, a lot of the people we were very lucky. Um, crowdfunding this, we needed to, pull in a lot of favors as much as possible um and a lot of the people that we 
are still friends with along this journey were people that we just met at Comic-Con. So we'd never met us before and said, oh, we love what you're doing. Like, do you want some artwork for the crowdfunding perks? Do you want to come and stay at our house? Does that help to save you on a hotel? Um, you know, what can we do to help you make this happen? So um, we that particularly happened in San Antonio with Alamo City Comic-Con, which is one of my favorite cons and the most amazing people, Apple and Amanda, that run it. Um, they were just so welcoming and said, what do you need? Like anyone you want to talk to, we can help. There were some other people that we met at another con um, who like helped us get certain people and were like kind of assisting us and supporting us. And it was just this really unexpected environment that I didn't quite know it was such a family within the community. Yeah, I think that's like I've been to a bunch of these kind of different um, comic convention things down here in the sydney uh we have uh, sydney comic con and uh, supernova conventions and such and you really do feel a kind of communal aspect to the whole kind of thing um yeah and i think it's really it really does shine like at first once you get in there like i remember the first one i went to even though i'm a fan of a lot of the things that they are a fan of it is kind of weird um to see everyone so dress, dressed up and and because you said about the detail that a lot of people put into this stuff you just imagine the hours and the, the money and the resources um but it just it's really cool as well and uh, i think it really comes across that way um and i found it very interesting you can really see with sam how his military background kind of comes through in how he approaches his kind of space within this whole kind of thing um everything has to be right this table has to go here this table has to go there mm-hmm. what was it like for you when you first see sam in that kind of element and he's kind of commanding his world how he wants to have it to make sure that not only is he comfortable but that but his fans that come see him get the most out of visiting him for the first time i tell you he that's not just at comic con like he is like that as a human, like in his day-to-day life. So whenever we filmed with him, it was like for an example is all his friends that he, I didn't connect with them originally. He connected with his family and friends and set, and sent me a schedule saying, this is where you're going to interview this person. These people are going to go to this location. You'll arrive here at nine o'clock. Then you'll do this interview and then you'll go across town. This is how long it takes to drive. Then you'll do this other interview. He set up a barbecue. That scene, there's a scene where like he climbs the rope and they're all kind of hanging out in this house and um, we interviewed all his family there as well. That was all this barbecue he set up purely for us to be able to conveniently um, interview people who were normally scattered across California. So he, you know, he organized that when we went to Mexico with him. He was like shoot this shot, get these signs, this would be great for GVs, don't forget to do this, don't forget to do this, make sure you get this, can you get this angle? And, you know, so there were times where I said to Sam, look, you just focus on being you and we will do what we're here to do, you know, the filming side. Um, So it wasn't just at Comic-Con, so it really did actually make me laugh when I went to the Comic-Cons with him and he was like that too and I I just thought, oh, that's so Sam, (laughs) you know. He arrives like super early, like the night before. I, I don't know any artists that do that, you know, to make sure everything's set up and the, the user experience is perfect and also how he and Melody will talk to fans is perfect and it really is quite comical when you see it. Um, your next film or the film you're working on right now is similar to Life After Flash. The next film has a title Life After the Navigator which deals with the film Flight of the Navigator which is another mm-hmm. 80s classic and you're also looking at the story of that film star Joey Kramer who was a 
I, I forgot how old he was at that time, maybe 10, 12 years old. Um, it was like 13. He was, 13. Yeah, just um, so you're dealing with his um, life story as well, which I think even more so than Sam's life story had even more kind of a tragedy um, in there as well and not much of a career afterwards, in fact, I'd, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea to follow up Life After Flash with Life After the Navigator, was that something you were thinking of doing um, during the making of Life After Flash? And um, are we going to expect a series of films, series of documentaries that deal with films set within the 80s and the forgotten stars that um, appeared in them? Uh, yes, it is the short answer. There will There is a series. I, I knew uh, that I wanted to do that during the filming of Flash. There are actually two others that we have started working on, pretty big ones, but because they're so big, they they take longer in the, the pre-production of it. Um, so I had just been looking at other films that I loved from the 80s and had Googled Flight of the Navigator because, you know, it's a classic film and I grew up with it and I adore it, yeah. um, and then read Joey's Wikipedia page. And, you know, it's really hard to read something like that when you grow up with this film and you think you could be friends with this kid, this character. Um, and you really feel for them. And, and I think, you know, the term forgotten is such a hard word because they they weren't necessarily, they're not forgotten with the people that grew up with them. Um, and like Sam says, you know, he and Sam's son says, he didn't disappear off the face of the earth. He was still working a lot. It's just he he wasn't as talked about on the front of magazines as other people. So it's a that's a hard word to use. But um I had, I mean, if you if you Google Joey, you will see that he was indeed arrested um, for bank robbery. Uh, and so I, I found him in BC. I tracked him down and we became pen pals for a, a little bit while he was finishing up his sentence. And he loved the idea. And when he got out, we went over to Canada to film for a few days with him just to, again, get to know him, start filming, uh, see what unfolded see what his story was um and it's really an incredible story and we actually just got back from another week shoot in the states where there was a um, randall kleiser who was the director of navigator who also directed greece and blue lagoon uh set up a reunion with a lot of the cast from the film so we had this day where we just did back-to-back interviews with everyone and joe hadn't seen him in 25 years and hadn't seen some of the cast in 35 years and randall hadn't seen some of the cast in 35 years so it was pretty um pretty amazing so we hope that uh to be finished end of year early next year hope Uh, is always this ambitious word but um yeah that's the plan so it will be a series um series of celebratory films of the 80s and biographical looks at the people that we remember them for last question uh lisa um i don't know if you know this but uh there is actually in the making or in early production stages a new adaptation of flash gordon uh to be made it's going to be an animated film and they just signed taika waititi uh, to direct um, and, and write I the heard. film. Um, what yeah. are your feelings on that? And do you think um, uh, Flash Gordon, I know there was a TV series that lasted like a hot second. Do you think that a new Flash Gordon movie has been long overdue? Uh, I'm in two minds, you know, because if you ask 
if you said to original fans of the serial, are they going to make a Flash Gordon movie, then they would have probably gone, oh, don't touch it. It's too classic, you know, and look what happened with that. So it's a tough one because I think if they – I'm a huge fan of of his. Um, I think he's hilarious. I think he would do a brilliant job. Um, I don't know if I like the idea of it being an animation, but maybe that's what it needs, that it's not compared to the original – well, the original, the the 1980 version. So I'm going to keep an open mind with it (laughs) because you never know. Um, you know, it's that classic thing of when everyone heard Heath Ledger was playing the Joker and they went, ah, it's a terrible idea. Yeah. You know? um, so open mind. I hope that they do it justice. I hope it's, it's done justice. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Well, before that film comes out, if everyone out there is looking for their Flash Gordon fix, I can really recommend watching Life After Flash. You can watch it now. Uh, go to www.lifeafterflash.com. There you can purchase it on video on demand and you can purchase it on DVD and Blu-ray. Highly recommended uh, movie. Um, I really do think that a lot of people after watching the film, if they haven't seen Flash Gordon, would want to look at the film afterwards. Um, and I think that's a, a real win on, on your part, Lisa, because I know, of course, you're a big fan of the film, so the more eyeballs on that classic, the better. Yay! Uh, yes. and, and also the life story of Sam Jones is just terrific. I think he he's just presents himself as really kind of like a person who, uh, like, at the age of 50, he started a whole new vocation. I think that was just really great on him on this part so I thank you very much Lisa for the movie and for presenting Sam's story and I really can't wait for Life After Navigator sounds terrific and I can't wait to watch that when it comes out as well thank you I will let you know when it's out excellent Uh, so everyone lifeafterflash.com Lisa Downs I thank you very much for joining me today thank you very much